uh, chapter of the Bible. If you like to get your Bibles ready, there's kind of courtroom drama, there's assassination plots, there's journeys and, and, and a lot happening. And Wim is very kindly uh, going to be reading the Bible to us this morning, so I'll hand over to him. So if you could open your Bibles to chapter 22, the end, verse 30, in Bible format or app or the bulletin or otherwise, that would be helpful. Chapter 22, the last verse, and then chapter 23. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was, accused, was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage! As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of his, this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. 
So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. There we go. Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, please speak to our hearts and our minds and help us to understand the relevance of your living word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, courage, friends, courage, courage. What a week it's been. Rod Marsh, Shane Warne, our two cricketing legends, our little world has been shaken. It's been shaken, hasn't it? Who felt the tremor this morning? The tremor, 3.6 on the Richter scale, just out of Mount Barker. Goodness gracious. Our world gets shaken, but it goes on. Of course, um, the shaking, the tremors that we're feeling here in our little world is nothing compared to what's happening, of course, in the Ukraine. If ever there was a time for Ukrainians to have courage, it's now. And their leader, is showing remarkable courage. He is Russia's number one target for assassination. And yet, President Zelensky hasn't run away. He's stayed. He's not sort of running a, a kind of, you know, the government from exile or something like that. He's there. He's on the ground. He's in the streets. 
He's on the streets, he's amongst the fighters, he's not backing down, he's calling for Putin to come and talk to him, challenging Putin, what are you afraid of? Come and talk to me. Zelensky's sheer courage has been the talk of the world's leaders and media. It's inspirational, it's inspired people, his people, to show courage like him, a kind of Zelensky courage. Before he became president, Zelensky was a stand-up comedian. Maybe that's why we're seeing funny scenes like that of the Ukrainian who, in driving his car, comes across this stopped Russian tank. He says, are you broken down? No, we're out of fuel. Oh, that's okay. I can give you a tow. Back to Russia. <laughs> I mean, the image of a little car towing a Russian tank, that's funny enough. But the cheek of the man to say, I'll, I'll tow you back to Russia, that is a Zelensky type of courage which makes us laugh, bold but humorous. The need for courage is a theme in the Bible. And there are times when courage is exactly the thing that's needed. When the Israelites were about to march in and take the promised land, Moses, and then Joshua after him, tell the people, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. When King David was about to die and pass the mantle of leadership over to a young Solomon who was tasked with building the temple. David told Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the Lord God, my God, is with you. When the armies of Assyria were camped at Jerusalem's gates, Hezekiah, the king, exhorted the people, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. When persecution first broke out in the early church, Peter led the church in praying for God's strengthening of them not to be immune from persecution, but to speak the word of God courageously and fearlessly. When Timothy was leading a church in Ephesus full of false teachers, Paul exhorted Timothy to be courageous, to fan into flame the gift of God because God did not give them a spirit of timidity, but of power, courage. There's time when, when courage is exactly what's needed, times for God's people to step up and to be courageous. Well, today, after a four-week excursus in the book of Acts, we are jumping back into the book of Acts, the book of Acts which traces the acts, not just of the apostles, but the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through his apostles in getting the gospel out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it seems to me that if we, 21st century Christians are to be serious about continuing that work. And what a great example we have in the Prince, who are obedient to Jesus' great commission and took the gospel to Cambodia and kept on, you know, having the baton and then passed, they've passed it on now, but they did it. If we're going to be serious about continuing that work, we need to, be, we need to open our mouths about Christ. We can't just live hoping people will become converted by watching us 
Though that's part of it, isn't it? It lends credibility to what we say. But we need to open our mouths because people can't infer from your lives, oh, the name of the Saviour that, Je- that the Lord God has sent is Jesus and he died on the cross for you and rose again on the third day to bring you life and salvation and forgiveness of sins and he promises to return. You can't infer that just from watching someone's lifestyle. It has to be told. So if we're going to be serious about taking on you know, the agenda of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, we have to open our mouths. And in 20, 2022 in Australia, that takes courage. Today we see the Apostle Paul needing to speak up with courage. He'd gone to Jerusalem. He'd been spotted in the temple. He'd been seized by a Jewish mob. He was almost teared apart just as the Holy Spirit had warned him. He was arrested by Roman soldiers. He testified to the seething crowd, great courage. He was then abused by the mob. He was ordered by the commander to be flogged without trial. He would almost certainly have been killed in that process, except he spoke up about his rights. Is it legal to flog a Roman citizen without a trial? That puts a stop to the flogging. But the commander cannot, for the life of him, work out what this man is being accused of, which is inciting the Jews so much. So he has Paul now brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. So now in chapter 23, here stands Paul, the messenger of Jesus. He's standing before the same Jewish council that had Jesus falsely tried on trumped up charges and had him wrongly condemned to death. It is now time for courage for courage under fire. The commander wants to know exactly why Paul is being accused by the Jews. And Paul says two things. It's it's like he lobs two grenades. The first is, the first brings him in conflict with the Jewish high priest. The second with the whole Sanhedrin. The first, he says, is simply this. I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. What's he saying? He's saying, I have been obedient to God. I have not been disobedient to him. Now, that is a grenade because at this, the high priest Ananias orders the one standing near him to punch Paul in the face, to which Paul then says to the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, and yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Now, Some of us will be thinking, good on you, Paul, for having a bit of spine and sticking up for yourself. Some of us will be wondering, why is Paul being so deliberately rude? Um, Why isn't he turning the other cheek? Why isn't he being more like Jesus was when he was before the Sanhedrin, when he didn't say anything? And maybe we forget that Jesus himself called out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders and did call them whitewashed tombs at another occasion. Very similar to what Paul does really here, isn't it? Well, we might wonder those things, but actually we'd miss seeing the real issue, which sticks out like snail's eyes. If you asked which pathway leads to obedience to God and which doesn't? Well, through obeying Jesus, Paul the Christian 
is beating the high priest of Judaism, hands down in obeying God. That's what comes out in the exchange. What high priest commands that someone be punched in the face for simply listening to God and doing what he said? Shouldn't the high priest be exactly the sort of person who encourages someone to be obedient to God and their conscience? Of course. So don't you think it ironic that the man who's the figurehead of the Jewish religion should show himself up as less obedient to God than Paul? Isn't that ironic? Doesn't that say something about the rightness or wrongness of following Jesus versus not following him? The irony in this little scene is, is just really loud in what it's saying to us. It is not the high priest who is fulfilling the spirit of God's law. It is Paul, Jesus' messenger. Paul's the one who's being obedient to God. The high priest is the one who's opposing God. Accepting Jesus leads to doing what God wants and obeying the spirit of the law. Rejecting Jesus leads to opposing what God wants and missing the spirit of the law entirely. In one direction, it all comes out. Well, in the second grenade that Paul lobs, he addresses the whole council. Knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, so like in any political party, it's made up of factions, right? So with the Jewish ruling council, you've got the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Paul calls out, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. My father and grandfather were Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Right? That divides the council. Half of them, the Pharisees, they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Half of them, the Sadducees, don't. To them, there is no life after death. This life is all there is. Money and power are all that matters because if you have money and power, then you can eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow you're going you're to die and that's about as good as it gets. Well, Paul has just lobbed this controversial grenade into the cafe of their cosy council and he's now sitting back and watching it explode. And again, we can think, this is smart, isn't it? Paul's just being clever. He's saving himself by dividing the opposition. But again, if you think that, you miss the real issue. Paul, up until this point, has never shirked a chance to talk of Jesus. So why has he lobbed this grenade? Is it just a strategic diversion to save his own skin? Or, in fact, is something more core at stake? He speaks not of the resurrection of Jesus, as we might expect, but the resurrection of the dead. I stand on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. What is that? It's the Jewish belief from the Old Testament that the day is coming when God will bodily raise believers to life from the dead. Jesus himself spoke about this. Jesus went and spoke to a woman whose brother had died, John chapter 11. She said to, um, to sorry, she said, uh, the woman said to Jesus, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus answered her, he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he proved it by raising the brother Lazarus from the dead. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus said, A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's speaking about the resurrection of the dead. According to Paul, the Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead comes true in Jesus. It is everything. But if you don't believe that the dead can be raised at all, like the Sadducees, then you're not going to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because the dead can't be raised. And then you're certainly not going to believe that we will be raised through Jesus. For Paul, the resurrection of the dead is like a foundation stone. It's, it's everything. Accept it, then the rel it's a relatively small step to accepting that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And if you accept that God has raised Jesus, then everything else falls in place. Accepting him as Lord is the most important decision you can make in your life. His resurrection will mean, what does it mean? It means that he's paid for our sins on the cross. That means forgiveness of sins is available. It means if you're Jewish, you don't need to turn to the temple anymore. Instead, what you need to do is turn and trust in Jesus. That's now the most important decision you need to make in your life. Because everything that the Jews had hoped for finds fulfillment in him. It's all about him. What about us? Is the resurrection of the dead something that you talk about? Is it something you believe? Does it matter to you? Is it core? Is it central in your life? Do you easily talk about it? I think of my unbelieving friend, Jamie. Good bloke. He works in IT. He's building a huge house on Mount Osmond. He plays in a band. He's kind of a cool guy. And for some reason, he doesn't mind hanging out with me. I find that amazing. Anyway, now... So he's my non-Christian buddy. Now, I might talk to him about God in, as, as it comes up in conversation, and I have shared with him something of what Jesus has said. I have indeed on a couple of occasions talked to him about Jesus' death on the cross. I might even talk to him that I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, I can do it with you guys. You're safe, right? But with him, he, he totally believes something different to me, and so, you know, it's a bit more risky for me. So I might, yes, I think I would talk about Jesus rising from the dead. But at that point, and he's done it, he'll look at me strangely and go, I like you, but you don't seriously believe that stuff, do you? I mean, not seriously. That is completely wacky. And if I was to go a step further and then talk about my hope that I will bodily rise from the dead long after I've been cremated or decomposed, right? He'll think I've seriously lost it. It is totally bizarre. And yet for Paul, it was core. To talk about it required courage. Well, the dispute, of course, became so violent that the Roman commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, and he ordered his troops to go down and take Paul by force and bring him to the barracks. What Paul said, the grenade he lobbed was so volatile that he was physically assaulted so that it wasn't 
just Paul who feared for his life. The Roman commander feared that Paul would be torn to pieces. Right? Now, again, it's ironic. It's the unbelieving pagan, the Roman commander, who saves God's messenger from God's ancient people from being ripped apart. That's hugely ironic, isn't it? My guess is that Paul knew the risk and he knew what, was, what he was doing was volatile and yet, guess what, he spoke up anyway. It's easy for us to think, you know, it's easy for the Apostle Paul because he was so courageous naturally and his level of courage is astounding but I couldn't do that. You know, Paul was fearless but that's not me. Well, if that's close to what we think or feel about Paul, I want you to look now at verse 11, okay? Look at it or listen to it because here is a direct word from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. That following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Here is Jesus' personal word to the Apostle Paul. Take courage. Have courage. Now, Jesus, we know, had already appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road when he was converted. He appeared to Paul a second time about three years after that, telling him in a trance, well, Paul was in a trance in Jerusalem, to leave Jerusalem quickly, Acts chapter 22, verse 18. 19 years after that appearance, Jesus now appears before Paul one last time. There's only three times. This is the last time. And, Paul, and Jesus tells Paul, take courage. Now, why would Jesus, the risen Jesus, need to appear to Paul, his apostle, his messenger, and tell him to take courage? Why would he need to do that, except that? Well, Paul was afraid. And he actually needed to hear it. He needed to hear the encouragement of Jesus himself. If we think being courageous means never being afraid, guess what? We are completely wrong. A soldier on the front lines will tell you that to be courageous means to act in spite of your fear. You feel fearful, but you do what you're meant to do anyway. That's courage. Being a Christian in Australia requires courage. To be a believer in Jesus at school or at university requires courage. To be a Christian tradie on a building site requires courage. Or in your workplace, it requires courage, especially if you're going to open your mouths and speak about your hope. That requires courage. Let me ask you, what would prompt you to speak more about your resurrection hope? I'm assuming you do, but maybe you don't. What would prompt you to speak? And if you are speaking, what would prompt you to speak more, more often, more boldly? What would prompt you to do that? We need to listen to Jesus' personal encouragement of Paul. Here's Jesus' words to us. Take courage. Be people of courage. I know you're afraid, he's saying, but take courage. Be strong and courageous. Now is the time. Be strong and very courageous. Take courage. That's what you need. 
Now, no doubt Paul was afraid, but even if he wasn't, <laughs> he's got good reason to very soon because 40 zealous Jews bind themselves with a solemn oath not to eat or drink anything until they've killed Paul, a premeditated plan. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, they must have got really hungry. <laughs> I mean, how long do you reckon they held out? It's funny to think, you know, you know, their breaking point, oh, let's go and get fish and chips. You know, <laughs> throw that. It's funny, isn't it? But the commander, of course, took it very seriously. But it, it was a serious threat. But again, there's humour. The plot was hatched. It was sealed with a solemn oath, but it was foiled by a relative, by the son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, who just happened to be in the right place at the right time to learn of the plot. The boy tells Paul, Paul tells the centurion, the centurion takes the boy to the commander, the commander writes to the governor, assigns a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, 470 trained Roman fighters to be Paul's nighttime escort to take him safely on the first leg of his journey to Rome, which is God's plan all along. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, the plot gets foiled by a boy. And by then a responsible Roman centurion and then a very prudent Roman commander, the plot gets foiled by God who, as always, is working sovereignly behind the scenes, delivering people from evil. He is in and through the details of who is standing where at what time, who is being distracted, whose minds are open at exactly the right place and the right time. He is sovereignly working to bring Paul to Rome so that Paul, who is Jesus' messenger, can testify about Jesus there, just as Jesus said that Paul would do. You see what this means? I hope you see what it means. This adds great strength to Jesus' words of encouragement. See, when Jesus says, take courage, he's not just saying, chin up, it'll be okay, I hope. He's not just saying, Chin up, boys, as you go over the top and face the slaughter of the machine guns firing against you. He's the one in charge. He's the one foiling the plans of evil men. He's the one actively working in the detail of our lives, placing the right person in the right place at the right time, and suddenly the evil plots and conspiracies of evil people are overthrown. This story is meant to make us smile with a Zelensky type of courage. We're meant to smile when we hear Jesus' words, take courage, because God, God has us, you see. He has us. What an appropriate song. Be strong and courageous, because the Lord of the nations holds his little ones safe by his side. Well, Jesus is the one speaking to us this morning. And in the explaining of this passage, we can just reflect on our own reactions, can't we? You know, um, we almost were guilty of misunderstanding Paul by kind of being distracted and missing the main point instead of, by instead wondering if he was simply being rude or perhaps clever. But we, 
if we get it wrong and misunderstand Paul, well, people are going to get us wrong and misunderstand us. But he still spoke, even though he was misunderstood. See, if we wait for the moment when, oh, I'll just wait till I'm sure that I won't be misunderstood before I bother speaking, guess what? You're never going to speak. If you wait to say, oh, uh, I'm pretty sure now that I've got such an alignment of thought with the people that I'm trying to speak to that they won't mishear me and then they'll just agree with what I say. Guess what? You'll never speak because there'll never be that level of alignment. You have to open your mouth. You have to. And Paul grasped this. How did he grasp it? Because he understood deeply, this is what was core for him, that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. That means obedience to God must mean, can only mean, living with Jesus as your Lord. Now that God's raised Jesus as Lord, we can't obey God without living as Jesus as Lord. Paul saw that, the high priest missed it, but still Paul spoke. And secondly, because God, Paul knew deep down God had risen Jesus as the Lord of life, that meant number two, Suddenly, Jesus becomes the focal point for every hope, every thought about the afterlife, every fear about Judgment Day, every thought about resurrection. It's all centered upon him. Paul gets this, which means even though he thought people would probably misunderstand him, still he has to speak about the resurrection of the dead. Even though people would misunderstand him, he opens his mouth because unless he does so, people aren't going to begin the process of reordering their brain to think rightly about this. I find this challenging, you know. Um, if we speak up about what's core, Jesus' resurrection as Lord, and the resurrection hope we share, most likely we're going to be misunderstood. Uh, I asked Sally this week, she gave me permission to say, um, do you think, uh, do people you meet with think that the, the resurrection of the dead is wacky? Um, not, not just, of course, the belief that Jesus himself came back in physical bodily form from the grave, but that the day is coming when everyone will bodily rise to life from the dead and that those who have trusted in Jesus will enjoy a physical life with Jesus in a new creation and those who've turned from God will be physically destroyed forever. Do people think that is wacky? She said, yeah, put it like that, it's wacky. But then she said something, she said, you know what? But the thing is, everyone wants to believe in heaven. They just don't know how it works. Well, that's insightful. Paul understood how it works. And despite the danger of being misunderstood or written off as unholy or wacky, despite it requiring courage to speak of it, Paul took the chance to explain it when he could. He opened his mouth. He spoke words of resurrection. What he didn't do was to wait and to think, well, I'll just wait until it's safe to speak when people can understand and probably agree with me and then I'll speak. That will never happen. He spoke about the resurrection though he knew he'd be misunderstood because it's the heart of what people need to grapple with and accept. But to speak of it, here's the point, requires courage. A kind of Zelensky type of courage. Because the resurrection of Jesus gives us perspective, you see, which can make us laugh. Just like this chapter makes us laugh. It was ironic that in one interaction, Paul shows up the Jewish high priest in interpreting the spirit of the law. We're meant to laugh when we see that. 
It was ironic that when Paul was before the Sanhedrin, it required the intervention of a pagan army commander to stop the messenger of God being torn to bits from the ancient people of God. It's ironic. We're meant to laugh at that. It's ironic that a solemn conspiracy of 40 Jewish assassins was undone by a boy. It's funny to wonder out loud whether they starved to death um, out of spite or just said, oh, well, now it's time for fish and chips. It's funny to see that if it weren't for that conspiracy to end Paul's life, he maybe wouldn't have made it safely to Rome, escorted as he was on the first leg of his trip by 470 soldiers. What we're meant to see in our wry smiles is that Jesus is the one who's truly in charge. He rules over the details of what happens from his throne. There's a connection between what happens here and who he is in heaven. And what that means is when Jesus says, take courage, he backs up his words and gives us evidence that he is at work in the details and that therefore he will be at work alongside us when despite our fears, we open our mouths and speak. This week I asked some of us, what would you need for you to speak more of your resurrection hope than you currently do? Now, maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, I don't have that hope. Well, that's the first step for you. (laughs) Get the hope, right? Maybe you do have that hope, but you, you really haven't thought enough on it. It's not core. It's sort of out on the fringe. Well, think on it more deeply. Make it core. It was. It is. But if it is your hope, what do you need to speak more of it? Well, one person I spoke to said, Opportunity, I'll just do it whenever I can. My guess is that's not everyone here. By far the most common answer of the people I asked was, what I need more of is courage. Because I'm afraid. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear the personal exhortation of the Lord Jesus Christ to you today. Here's the words of the risen Jesus for you. And what he says is, take courage. Take courage. Father in heaven, may we be people of courage. Despite our fears, may we open our mouths to speak. Please give us opportunity and give us boldness. And even though we're afraid of being misunderstood, may we speak for the glory of Jesus and the salvation of people for whom he died and rose. Amen.